Welcome to our new podcast, Flock to Faculty. I'm David Hull, professor of Chinese language and literature here at Washington College, and I'll be the host of the series. The idea behind this podcast came to me when I realized that there are so many amazing faculty members here, and and every now and then I'll hear some of the things that they're doing, you know, in the classrooms or in their research, and I'm always really blown away. But I also feel kind of guilty, like I really should have known about these cool things they're doing already. And I figure I'm probably not the only one who would like to hear more about the faculty and what they're doing here.、Um, so why not make a podcast where I can learn more and pass that along to you? If this seems interesting enough to you, I see no reason why we can't just go through the faculty one by one and learn about everybody. The main areas we're going to be looking at here are their teaching and their research. But we also do want to get to know them personally as well, and do this in regular episodes that you can take on on your own schedule. I also want to make this series accessible to everyone, from the student who wants to know something about a professor before they take their class, to prospective students who might want to get a feeling for the way things, the way we do things here at Washington College. To family members of students who are curious about this professor that keeps on getting mentioned when their student comes home, and of course, I would like this to be interesting to a broader audience of people who just want to get to know、uh, about these amazing people that we have here. With that basic idea laid out like that, let's meet our first guest, Dr. Rachel Durso. We'll start things off. First, we'll talk about her,、uh, her and how she came to Washington College. Then we'll talk about her teaching, and after that, we'll talk about her research. She is an absolutely amazing person, and I could only wish that we could have kept talking. But rather than have me tell you how great she is, let's let her show us. Okay, so to to start off, could you please、uh, introduce yourself a little bit? I'm Rachel Durso. I am the department chair of sociology. I am also the director of our justice law and society minor and the pre law faculty advisor. So basically, all your justice needs. Murder, law, <laughs> crime. I'm your person. So, what are the what are the most common te- classes that you teach here? So, I teach criminology every semester.、Um, criminology generally is pretty popular, thanks to、uh, true crime and the millions of procedural cop shows we have on、uh, our televisions and streaming services.、Um, and it's also the gateway、uh, class for a lot of the classes for the Justice Law and Society minors. So then. After that, I typically teach a lot of sort of upper level electives、um, associated with criminology. So classes like victimology,、uh, juvenile delinquency, and social welfare. I teach a class on punishment, which is kind of my research area.、Um, what else do I teach? Variant behavior, women, crime, and the criminal justice system.、Uh, class on gangs. So a lot of really fun.、Um, Exciting upper level electives. <laughs>、uh, fun, I'm not so sure about, but, but they sound like great classes. It's fun for students, even though <laughs> like a lot of times、uh, the joke in some of my classes will be, I'll come in and just tell them like, okay guys, here's how I'm gonna bum you out today. <laughs> like, let's talk about elder abuse, and but they they're still really interested in these topics, and、um, our students are really empathetic. So I think、mm. uh, a lot of learning about sort of. These ways in which people are victimized、um, by by other individuals, by、mm-hmm. governments, by systems,、um, really resonates with them and kind of inspires them to think more about these issues, just as like citizens, as voters, as you know, maybe a, a career path,、uh, particularly if they're going into law, looking into like human rights or、mm-hmm. um, some sort of public advocacy work. Sure. So the the first section that I wanted to kind of go into is a little bit about the history of you and,、okay. and all of these things. <laughs> so、um, 
in terms of non-academic things, you know, before you came to Washington College, um, what what kind of non-academic things were you involved in? Other jobs, other other situations? So I actually was a certified canoe and kayak instructor for a number of years. Um, so I worked for our Jewish Community Center's uh, summer camps in Columbus, Ohio. And so I was their kayak canoe instructor and waterfront director for a number of years. So like got my whole certification through the American Canoe Association. Um, so I did that for a long time which was a really fun job. Like, I mean, it's great getting paid to, like, teach kids how to be on the water and get to sit in a kayak all day myself. Um, So I did that. I also uh, worked at a pizza shop for a long time. So that was actually my first job. And I held that job up until, like, the middle of grad school. Uh, So I was a prep cook. I manned the ovens. I... Uh, manned the pasta station. (laughs) I was a waitress when I wasn't cooking. So um, that was a great job. It was for a a small family restaurant. So I got really enmeshed in the family. Like the grandmother knitted me an afghan when I uh, graduated (laughs) from high school. So, um, you know, I still go in and see them when I go back and visit my uh, folks in my hometown. So those were two of my (laughs) pre-professor jobs. This is a common thought, but I often think that people everyone should do food service for a little while. I think it's, you learn a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I I actually tell people, I think that um, everyone should work either food service, retail, or working with children at some point, because I think it gives you appreciation for people who do those jobs full time, but also for, you know, like, especially working with children and parents who might be like struggling out in public. And I have a three and a half year old, so I, I'm very much in the trenches right now. You know the struggle. Yes, the struggle is real. So with all the canoeing background, do you, are you able to get out on the Chester at all? Or is that something that? Yeah, we do. Um, not as much as I would like, yeah. just because, again, three and a half year old, we're, we're kind of... Um, at her mercy a lot on the weekends but yeah I've gotten some kayak time some canoe time we're actually now that we have a house and we have space to store one looking into buying one for this year so but uh, for those of you who don't know you can get them you can borrow them for free at our waterfront so (laughs) little plug for the waterfront (laughs) right so getting into your your the academic side of things um how did you come to this field what 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 led you to choose this direction it feels a little convoluted but i guess maybe that's a good lesson for our students <laughs> um so i started out uh in undergrad as a biochemistry pre-med major um and then biochem broke me which i'm sure many <laughs> of our students can uh relate to and um, I actually went to Ohio University on a history scholarship. Um, oh. The uh, university used to hold a contest for high school students where essentially you would answer these multiple choice questions about American history. And if you scored in like some percentile, you then went down to OU um, and took an essay exam. And if you won the essay exam, you got a full ride to OU. And so I won that. Um, and so... After, like, pre-med didn't work out, I was like, well, you know, obviously, like, I'm okay at history, so maybe I should be that major. Um, So I called my parents and said, I I think I'm switching my major. So then I was history pre-law. 
And I was actually the secretary of our pre-law fraternity. But as my um, friends started going to law school, my, my friends who were upperclassmen and like kind of reporting back, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I'm not sure this is really what I want to do. And I had taken some sociology classes and I was really interested in sociology. And I, I took a couple criminology classes and a research methods class. And I was just like, I think this is actually really what I want to do. However, I was still a history major, so I wrote my history thesis on um, hate crimes against uh, people of Middle Eastern descent and Muslims comparing uh, the Iran hostage crisis to like post 9-11. And so in the midst of that research, I was doing a lot of um, research, like looking at like violent incidents from newspaper archives, but also looking at like message boards. And so looking on these message boards kind of um, unfortunately uh, introduced me to like the white supremacist movement in the United States, which really kind of um, amped up a bit after 9-11. And so at this time, I, I had decided, you know, I'm interested in applying to grad school for sociology. I applied to a bunch of different programs, really looking at places that were strong in criminology because I was getting interested in that. And so then when I went to Ohio State, um, I, I had an advisor who I had pitched this project of sort of examining hate groups um, mm -hmm. within the United States. And so my master's thesis was actually um, a state level sort of statistical analysis predicting whether or not your state would have active white supremacist groups <laughs> using data from the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so um, that was my master's project. And I still like I ended up publishing that paper. And to this day, I'm still reviewing all kinds of articles mm -hmm. written about white supremacist groups, just did one for a journal called Mobilization. And then as I was doing my graduate coursework, I got really interested in issues of racial disparity and mass incarceration. And so that's kind of where my um, dissertation led to, where I was looking at sort of the drivers of mass incarceration as well as some of the consequences. Um, so looking at things like costs, the rise of private uh, prisons, uh, mm -hmm. looking at sort of county level factors that drive mass incarceration. And so that's kind of where I am today. So um, that's that's how I got to. <laughs> well, I, I absolutely love that because I think that's one of the things, again, thinking of students who are who might be listening to this, it, it's sometimes hard to understand that there's no one straight line that leads to to anyone's future. But I think in particular, we academics do, we've bounced around a whole lot. Yeah. And so just as kind of a coda to that, do you what do you think from your from your early pre-med, from your early pre-law, from your history stuff, does that does that feed into what you do today? Are, are, you, are you a better scholar now because you went all of those different directions? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I use my my history background a lot in terms of thinking of my sociological research, because as I, I tell my students all the time, you know, social problems don't happen in vacuums. They um, are usually the culmination of lots of different events, decision-making processes. And so if you look at something like mass incarceration, there are like these historical structures and social forces that have led us to where we are today. And so, you know, being able to use sort of my, my thinking as a historian to understand current day social problems is really um, 
useful for me. And and knowing a lot about American history because I, I had to take so many classes on it um, has really helped sort of me contextualize some of these issues for my students when I'm talking to them about like, this is why we have private prisons. It actually starts all the way back from like reconstruction. Um, and so um, helping them sort of understand some of that history. So uh, another thing that I, I want to dip into for all of these chats is um, is graduate school itself. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a good portion of our students are looking at graduate school and a lot, there's a lot of kind of messy information about what graduate school is, how yeah. it works, how you make it through. So um, remind us, where did you go to graduate school and de- how did that process work for you? The Ohio State University. Um, have to, <laughs> have have to say, to say the villa. Um, so when I was applying to graduate school, um, I had met with a couple of professors who uh, were in sociology and criminology and sort of got some advice from them about, you know, where were their strong crim programs, um, if they had gone to a place I was interested in, asking them sort of about, like, what is the town like? What is the department like? You know, what is the university like? So, for instance, um, Washington State has a really great strong crim program. Um, One of my advisors in undergrad had gone there, and when I talked to her about it, she was like, you seem like you want to maybe go to a city. I would not recommend <laughs> Pullman, Washington. <laughs> and so it, that was really helpful because yeah. when you think about um, where you're going to go for grad school or law school, like where you go does matter because you have to remember you're going to be living there for, you know, if it's law school for three years, if it's grad school, who knows? Um, <laughs> right. It took me seven years to get through. And so uh, that process, I think, is going to be harder if you really don't like the place where you are, yeah. you know, living and working and studying and doing your research. So I had applied to a number of different programs. Um, one of my other advisors, Steve Scanlon, who was actually an Ohio State grad, um, had told told me, don't go anywhere that won't give you money. Um, yes, yes. And so I ended up at Ohio State, honestly, because they gave me the best financial package. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lucky for me, they're also a very highly <laughs> rated sociology program. Right. Um, but they were willing to fund me for six years, which was the yeah. longest um, of any of my financial packages. And, um, and it was a decent stipend. So for those of you listening out there, basically how it works in grad school is if you are, are being funded, um, most grad schools will pay your tuition um, and then you do some sort of work for them, either as a research assistant, a teaching assistant. At Ohio State, they also had greater positions where you would sit in for very large sections and just do the grading for like 200 students <laughs> um, while the professor did the lectures. And um so then they pay you a stipend right. um, for like part time work uh, doing that so that you can theoretically have some money to live on. And, and, and that's so important. And I, I tell my students that as well, like that if you're not getting some kind of money, some kind of funding, some kind of stipend, you are probably. Yeah, you, they're 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 
you probably don't want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> so how about the actual like the, the, the content and the classes and working with the professors as a graduate student? Was that was that something that you went to immediately or, or did you struggle to get into that that space? I think um, so. One thing that I, I talked to my students about is I did. Uh, so like them, I did an undergraduate thesis that, you know, was all of my senior year and I had an interesting sort of transition to grad school because um, the college that I was in within Ohio University is called the Honors Tutorial College, and it's set up in a tutorial model, meaning that um, essentially students take, you know, your standard classes with like other students, but then as part of your major, you take a seminar um, with just folks in the Honors Tutorial College in your major that mm. um, for history, we had a seminar for American history, one for like non-Western and one for European history. And then um, we were on a quarter system. Then the remaining two quarters, you would essentially have one-on-one courses with a professor. So we would um, ha- have like a list of all the professors who were willing to do tutorials for that quarter and sort of what was their area of expertise. And so you would meet with them and you would, you know, talk to them about their area of expertise. And then the two of you would sort of agree on like, this is the topic we are going to explore for the quarter. And so like in some of my tutorials, I was pretty much reading almost a book a week Mm -hmm. um, for, you know, this 12 week quarter. So in some ways I felt like prepared for the workload of graduate school, but because I had spent a lot of time and energy um, on my thesis, I was a little burned out when I started. And so, you know, when students talk to me about, like, should I take a gap year? (laughs) A lot of times I I confess to them that, like, one of my regrets looking back is I wish I had taken a gap year between my undergrad and my graduate school just because I think in my first, um, Ohio State was also in quarters. I think my first quarter, I didn't get quite as much out of my classes as I would have liked to just because I was still sort of like burned out from um, finishing my thesis. But uh, I will say like having written a thesis in undergrad, I was also Mm. feeling really prepared to, to write a master's thesis and like talking to some of our students who have gone on to grad school after Washington College, they've reported the same thing, which is really nice to hear. It, it's such it's such an advantage because mm-hmm. if you for folks who've gone into grad school without having written, you know, a major research piece, um, it can be terrifying. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, the professors that you're working with in grad school, I think, are not always aware of how to teach you some of those research skills. And so, um, you know, having had some foundational <laughs> background on that was really helpful. <laughs> well, that's actually a nice segue because the, the one of the problems that at a lot of other schools, especially the big state schools, you'll very often have a professor who is not a trained teacher. Right. And, and and you talk about grad school, it's doubly so there. A lot of the grad school advisors, they're simply not trained to teach you in that way. Their specialty, uh, you know, their, their area of specialty, they're brilliant, of course. But um, getting to that teaching is um, is not simple and, mm-hmm. and it does take some training. So let's talk about teaching. Um, just to t- kind of dip our toes in here, you talked about your criminology class being kind of maybe one of the more popular classes that that, that you teach. What do you think drives the students to those classes? And and in in your teaching, what what do you think that they're 
that they're really getting out of that class that, that they, again, I hate to use the word enjoy, but that they're yeah. enjoying out of the class. I, so I actually asked this question uh, on the first day of class, like, <laughs> what brought you here? Like, because, um, you know, it's nice to get a sense of like, are are you just taking this class because, you know, it's fulfilling a distribution? Yeah. You which know. is totally legit. Yeah, which is totally <laughs> fine. Um, you know, no offense to me. Uh, you know, are they watching this class because they love a lot of or are they taking this class because they watch a lot of Dateline or like listen to a lot of like true crime podcasts? Mm-hmm. Are they taking this class because they feel like it's going to complement something else they're doing? So a lot of times psych majors will right. take the class because they're interested in sort of, you know, abnormal behaviors. Um I've had some creative writing students take the class before, so James Hall has sent some students. Uh, so <laughs> Professor uh, James Hall, who's the director of the Lit House um, and, you know, works with a lot of students on creative writing, have sent um, students my way because he has told them, like, take this criminology class if you want to be able to write villains. Um, That's brilliant. Yeah. And so <laughs> the first time I had a creative writing minor in my class, I was really excited because I was like, good, like, maybe you'll be able to like add some complexity some nuance to your bad guys um but i find overall a lot of times students um when i ask them that question they're really just interested in why why do people commit crimes because if you think about it in our news like our news makes it seems like crime is happening all the time like there's so much violent crime and we've seen a slight uptick over the last couple of years but like if you compare where we are crime-wise um, to, like, 30 years ago, we're actually living in, like, sort of an unprecedented period of, like, you know, safety and low violence rates. And so um, there, this sort of aberrant behavior uh, from people, I think, uh, students really want to understand it because most of us, for the most part, follow the rules, follow the norms, yeah. like... You know, most of us are never going to commit a serious crime in our life or be victimized by one, thankfully. And so trying to understand, well, why is it some people do do this, I think is really a big driver for why a lot of students um, take the class. Uh, uh, there are so many cool things I want to ask about that, because but, but just to to diverge from the teaching side of things for just a second. What do you think is the effect of our kind of focus and our obsession on violent crime in absence, or at least like you say, you know, we're not living in a giant, an era of massive violent crime compared Mm -hmm. to historically. What do you think the effect is of everyone being so um, focused or or terrified by the the potential crime that never happens? Mm -hmm. It, I, we talk about this a bit in the class where, you know, I, I talk about it in a sense of like how it affects you as a citizen. So, yeah. you know, it might affect who you decide to vote for right. um, in terms of your perception of crime. Uh, it might affect where you decide to live, um, where you decide to go. So a question I will often ask students is like, hey, in your community that you are from or, or the city near you, is there like a known like wrong side of the tracks yeah. or bad neighborhood that you don't go to? And all of them will say yes, of course. And so then we talk about like, okay, so what are the larger impacts if an area is perceived to be 
unsafe or high crime? What are the impacts for the people who live there, mm-hmm. for people who are trying to operate businesses there? Yeah. So for instance, like where I come from in Columbus, Ohio, um, a lot of the areas or neighborhoods that are considered to be like scary for a lot of the residents there are places where there are large immigrant populations. Yeah. Um, oftentimes they are running businesses, they're running restaurants. And so one of the things like I talked about with my students is like, what are you maybe missing out on? Because you're uh, not willing yeah, to go to yeah. those areas. Um, and like, how does it then affect these folks who are trying to right. do things to potentially help that neighborhood, like you know, provide jobs, provide economic opportunities, mm-hmm. run small businesses? Um, so those are some of the, I think, more tangible effects right. um, that people think of. But, you know, just also thinking about our own safety. So, yeah. you know, what are the things that we do or worry about all the time in terms of protecting ourselves? Um, I talk a lot about the rise of like ring doorbells and yeah. increasing surveillance and, you know, do we feel like this makes us safer or what are sort of the consequences of this increased <laughs> surveillance in terms of like monitoring other people's activities in terms of things like racial profiling. Right. Um, so those are, you know, a handful of the different. Yeah, it, it, it's it's um, the, the racial aspect seems almost unavoidable. Mm-hmm. I, what I immediately think of is um, students from abroad who are looking at Washington College, which is one of the most peaceful kind of bucolic places, uh, you know, we've got. But there are so the, the mood of you know, you, your mom and dad are going to say, oh, you're you want to go to the U.S. That's mm-hmm. a dangerous place. Just just like the the immigrant restaurant that you're missing out on because of the, the mood that that's um, that's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> so back to back to your classes. Um, uh, what what is a, a regular kind of week of classes in Professor Durso's class? Like, are you mainly a lecture kind of professor, or are you a discussion professor, or um, presentations? How how? I think it kind of depends on the class, which is probably not exactly the answer you're looking for. <laughs> so, for instance, when I teach my intro to sociology class, um, I do it sort of in a Uh, format where I lecture on Tuesdays and then um, I teach the class using a lot of like documentaries and podcasts. So like before the Thursday class, the students will watch a documentary or listen to a podcast that sort of illustrates one of the topics that we're like learning about for that week. And so then on Thursday, we usually discuss that media and make those connections. And then Mm -hmm. a lot of times there will be like some sort of an activity to go along with it. So um, that would be the format for like a 101 class. For um, criminology, it sort of depends on the topic in the class. When I'm teaching theory, it's a bit more lecturing just because I have to sort of like get through all the theories, but I do try and build in some activities. So for instance, one of my favorite activities that we do is I give the students um, song lyrics that depict like a crime and they have to apply theories using like the um, data or the the facts of the Mm -hmm. case in the song lyrics. And then that kind of prepares them for their final paper where they're going to be applying what they've learned over the semester to a piece of mass media like, you know, a crime procedural show or a documentary. So that's a fun one. Um, We do a lot of data work um, in criminology. So they have a scavenger hunt through the Crime Data Explorer, which is the FBI's um, 
uniform crime reports. Uh, so, you know, I teach them essentially how to use it. And then I'll be like, OK, so I need you to go find in, you know, 2007, how many aggravated assaults were committed by men um, yeah. types of activities. Um in some of my other classes, I try to bring in, you know, speakers. Mm -hmm. So um, when I teach women crime in the criminal justice system and victimology, I brought in um, a colleague, Caroline Huffaker, who is the um, victim advocacy coordinator for the Chattanooga Police Department. And she talks about, you know, working with victims and working with law enforcement and like where, you know, the goals of law enforcement and victims intersect and sometimes where, you know, they may be running parallel to each other and, you know, how to navigate that. Um, trying to think of what else. Oh, and when I teach my uh, sociology of punishment class in pre-COVID times, hopefully now that we're, <laughs> we're starting to come out of things, we'll be able to do this again. I've taken my students on a field trip to a medium security prison yeah. in Somerset County, Maryland. And we do like a three hour tour of the prison, usually accompanied by obviously uh, corrections officers, but usually one of the prison um, social workers usually mm -hmm. comes along with us, um, the assistant warden. And so students get to experience what it is like to be in a medium security prison, yeah. what it is like to be incarcerated there, what it's like to work there. Um, they talk to folks who are incarcerated during these times and they see everything like they go to the um, medical wing, they go into the mess hall, they go um, to, uh, you know, the residential cells, they've gone to um, uh, a solitary confinement, like they get to go oh. inside of a cell. And so um, that's a really great field trip because I think uh, a lot of times my students have sort of been like, oh, this isn't going to be a big deal. And then they go and they're like, oh, this is a big <laughs> deal. This is this is a little scary. Well, that, that's so that rolls into another question that I was going to ask, because one of the things that when we've talked about your projects before, I I always love the way that you incorporate media and either visual or audio. You've got a whole bunch of cool projects on that angle. And. What I'm curious about is, obviously, we're dealing with crime, violence, horrific things. Um, how do you prepare the students for the emotional response that they have? Because I'm, I'm, I'm certain that the stuff that they, that you assign, it's very uncomfortable material, and I can imagine walking through the prison is emotionally exhausting, right? So how how do you put them in a good position to be able to? not just kind of shut down. Yeah. So, you know, I always give some sort of a, a prelim before we're going to talk about things that I know to be particularly upsetting. Yeah. So, for instance, when I'm teaching about like rape and sexual assault and criminology, before that class, I kind of talk to my students about like, this is the way in which we're going to cover it. We're going to approach it from sort of a definitional legal and consequential aspect. Mm -hmm. Um when I am teaching a class like victimology, um, they read uh, Missoula by John Krakauer, which is about sexual assaults occurring um, uh, at the University of Montana and sort of, you know, the the, the difficulty in investigating those cases um, issues with Title IX enforcement. And so when they're reading things that are particularly hard, oftentimes I'll assign in conjunction 
a journaling exercise oh, where cool. they can mm-hmm. um, essentially it's like a free format where I basically tell them like, look, here are my only stipulations. Make it about 350 to 500 words. Connect it to something that we've learned in class. But like you can use this to like process what you're so you can tell me like this made me angry this made me really upset this sounded like something that happened to my friend and so it really you know resonated more with me um and so i i try to have some sort of like debriefing activity or assignment alongside when we would go to the prison like the next class we would have like a whole discussion debriefing the experience in terms of you know what did they learn? How did it connect to things we were talking about throughout the class? And then how did they feel? Um, Because, you know, we can't control necessarily what uh, people who are incarcerated are gonna say to them, um, what, you know, folks who are working um, for the prison are gonna say to them. And they sometimes say contradictory things, like we'll sometimes get paired with a CEO who's like very law and order, very, you know, authoritarian, um, really kind of thinks the worst of the inmates. And then one year, uh, the former assistant warden, um, he's, I think, since retired, basically told our students, like, I like to think that I'm not much better than most of the people in here. And he basically told my students, like, everybody is one bad day away from ending up in prison. And that really kind of, um, I think, left a a major mark on those students when thinking about, like, you know, you never think of it that way, but right. the the classic example I give to my students of, you know, how you could be one bad day from uh, ending up in prison is, I'll ask them, do you ever text and drive? Mm-hmm. And pretty much all of them do. And he said, if you got into an accident and somebody died as a result, you could be convicted of manslaughter. Yeah. And that would be a really devastating thing. Like you didn't necessarily have malicious intent. You might not be a bad person, but you might be punished regardless. Right. That's uh, I I we, I think in teaching it, it's it's so critical to focus on on that end of things and it, and it's like you say it's different for every class it's different for every student but that's um it's a it's a hard ask mm-hmm. but I I especially like the journaling uh, uh, project I think that I think I might borrow might borrow that from <laughs> you um so. Uh, for the for the students uh, who come out of your classes, um, let's say you know uh, a student who's just taking it for for requirements mm-hmm. versus a, a minor versus a major, what what do you kind of hope they leave your classes with? Like for a one one class, someone who's never going to take another class uh, with you again, what do you hope they come out with? I guess more of a nuanced view of crime and justice within our society. Um, I think a lot of times the way in which um, these things are presented are oftentimes really black and white. Like, you know, um, police officers and prosecutors are always good guys and criminals are always bad guys. And like they have these evil, amoral motivations as to why they commit crimes. And yeah, that is, you know, we can definitely like point to lots of, you know, evil folks who you know, do harm to folks um, in really uh, terrible ways. But um, a lot of what I look at are sort of what are sort of the structural issues that potentially push people into crime um, or make crime more of a rational choice for some people versus other types of people. Um, 
because I think, you know, when we think about um, people committing crimes, there's sometimes this idea like, well, that's irrational because, you know, don't they know like they could end up in prison? And when you then kind of peel back and look at like, what are their individual circumstances? What environment are they kind of operating in? How have they been socialized by peers, by their community, by their families? Then, you know, you get more of like a shades of gray type of view. It's the the Jean Valjean stealing a loaf of bread. Right. Exactly. Um, Great. Les Mis. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) But so but I think this goes back to what one of the things you mentioned earlier about this idea, the kind of the socialized idea of what crime is and how we're kind of trained to fear criminals. I, I think that that the idea of someone who makes the logical argument or makes a logical conclusion that this crime is going to be needed. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to do this crime so that my life will X, Y, Z. I, I think that's harder for us to come to terms with because, we're again, we're brought up criminals are evil. They have, right. done, they have done wrong and it's easy to categorize that, right? right? And crime is also really politicized. So when we think about, um, so like the classic example that I give, um, so I wrote an article on overcriminalization with my colleague Heather Schoenfeld, um, who is at uh, Boston University. And one of the kind of classic examples of the politicization of crime is the invention of carjacking as a crime category. So like in the 80s and early 90s, um, there was like a rash of these robbery kidnappings where people would commit armed robbery against drivers to steal their cars. Sometimes they would kidnap the drivers. Sometimes they would just take uh, the cars. And so it was happening in a a bunch of large cities and people were kind of, it was getting a lot of media coverage. People were getting outraged. And then there was this case in Washington, D.C. where a young mother was carjacked and her baby was in the back seat and she was trying oh, to get the God. baby out of the back. She got stuck in the car door and was dragged and killed um, oh, as God. the you know assailant was trying to steal her car. And so this provoked a lot of outrage. So politicians came up with a new crime called carjacking mm-hmm. that they then um, uh, put into place through legislation. Then a bunch of states um, uh, adopted this. And so... One of the things that like a lot of folks who are interested in overcriminalization point out is like we actually already had laws on the books right. that would have addressed this. We have yeah. you know motor vehicle theft, we have armed robbery, we yeah. have kidnapping, we have assault, um, and like theoretically, somebody who commits a carjacking would have been charged with you know any number of those crimes. Um, but it was a way in which politicians could sort of look like they were being responsive yeah. to a problem yeah. rather than like addressing the underlying problem of like, why are so many people committing <laughs> armed robberies and stealing cars? And so, you right. know, that that's a big issue to think about as well in terms of like, how does media highlighting, how does right. political framing and political highlighting get us to think about crimes in certain ways or care right. about certain crimes that maybe we didn't really care about before? Well, it was just, I was just reading an article this morning about Last year, uh, 2022, Walgreens had had hyped up uh, these gangs that were coming into mm-hmm. Walgreens and 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 stealing everything, and they were talking about this new wave of of like broad daylight theft. And uh, just I think it was yesterday um, they came out in a in a, a shareholders call or whatever, and they and they said, yeah, it really never happened. Mm-hmm. It, it it wasn't it didn't happen at all. Um, our, our shrink rate is actually lower than it's been in a long time. 
And the article I was reading was talking about a kind of a similar thing where Walgreens was able to move the media mm-hmm. needle and we were all talking about these these gangs of, of Yeah, then being like concerned like, well what if I'm just in a Walgreens picking up like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cold medicine? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm in the, like what if they rob me? So like yeah, these things like create this fear, um, you know, create moral panics right. a- around particular issues that are usually over exaggerated. Sure. And so so those are things that, you know, I'm interested in students learning about and also just learning about like crime data. How mm-hmm. is crime data collected? What can it tell us? What are the deficits? Um, how do we know it's being used correctly? Because like a lot of times people will sort of not put it into context yeah. and then you can get the wrong idea of, you know, what does this chart look like or what right. does the statistic look like or what is this report from the UCR? And so we do a lot of work on looking at crime data in at least criminology, but in some of my other classes yeah. and trying to parse that out in terms of, you know, as, as a data consumer, these are things that you need to know. So if somebody is using crime statistics, how are they using them? Are they right. using them in a correct context? Are they using them to scare you? Mm. Um, and I think that's something that we're all uh, coming to terms with. And I know I'm folding that into my classes too. Mm-hmm. Just not not necessarily, I don't do so much of the, the data um, analysis, but just how to read well? Yeah, uh, that seems like such a simple thing, but it's 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 reading charts, it's right. reading data, it's reading you know literature or whatever. So the the next step. So how about for a uh, a major? Like what what would you expect someone who graduates um, to get from? Your, your programs, I should say programs, right? You have a few. Yeah, so I mean, from a social major perspective, I think we do a really good job of helping students identify um, agency versus structure. So mm-hmm. sort of understanding ways in which people can make choices, but the ways in which structure, whether that's the economy, politics, environment, community, norms, constrain those choices um, to help sort of understand people's behavior or like why we see certain trends um, in outcomes for folks in society. So that's a huge part of it. Um, You know, we actually have our students um, in our senior seminar, they do what's known as a major map where they kind of chart out um, the different types of things that they've learned from the major. And so um, a lot of our students, uh, because I was just grading these a a few weeks ago for our senior seminar, we're talking about things of um, understanding sort of like macro and micro theories to explain people's behavior, um, interactions between individuals and larger organizations. diversity in populations, so sort of understanding how issues, um, social problems might affect people differently based on their race, ethnicity, their Mm. social class, their geographic location, you know, their gender, um, all of these different factors. Mm. Um, And so those are things I think we do well. We are also, because we're really focused on um, having students do original research, um, you know, we we really kind of hone thinking about like data collection that is influenced by, you know, prior research by uh, some sort of a theoretical perspective. Um, and so I, I think our students have a, a good sense by the time they graduate of like 
how does a research process look like? Like, how is it, you know, fully integrating these different elements mm-hmm. um, within sociology? Mm-hmm. That's, that sounds sounds really cool. So I, I want to get to uh, your research. We've talked in, in kind of a, a patchwork way, mm-hmm. uh, a whole bunch of the, the research um, kind of angles that you have. And I've got a list, <laughs> a, a very long list of things that I'd like to talk about. But one of the things that really jumped out to me was uh, your work with the, the Midshore Council on, on Family Violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been a long-term project. Uh, yeah, it actually you. just wrapped okay. um, in the past year or so. But uh, we worked together with um, the Midshore Council on Family Violence and our Geographic Information Systems Lab oh. for like four or five years. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so essentially, Midshore had come to the GIS lab and they wanted the GIS lab to do some mapping of um, some different outcomes, like where, you know, their clients were coming from Mm -hmm. to get a sense of like, hey, is there need where we might need to open up like a satellite office down in Caroline County? So the Mitchell Council on Family Violence, um, for those of you who don't uh, know their work, they work with um, survivors of domestic violence and help um, economically empower them so that they can live independently and permanently exit uh, abusive relationships, but they also provide sort of emergency services, so Mm -hmm. like emergency housing, um, support services like food, um, legal representation, um, help with doing things like filing protective orders, uh, and so getting people into counseling. And so they are the only provider for five counties um, here on the Eastern Shore. So they serve, uh, let's see if I can remember them, uh, Kent, Queen Anne's, Talbot, Caroline, and Dorchester. And so... um, They do a lot of really great work. So as we were sort of working together, we talked about, um, you know, getting a better sense, too, of trying to understand why are people maybe not seeking their services? Mm -hmm. Um, What what is potentially going on? And so I did a multi-year project uh, interviewing uh, survivors who are sort of at different stages in the process. So we had um, some folks who are still kind of in crisis. So we consider those in crisis only receiving services for about 30 days. Mm-hmm. Some people who were sort of in transition where they, you know, were out of the crisis stage, They were, but they were working on getting stable, whether mm-hmm. that was finding employment, um, you know, dealing with like uh, legal issues, mm-hmm. working on maybe getting divorced, um, working on, you know, um, disentangling like financial problems that were a result of the domestic violence. And then um, I also talked to people who were considered survivors. So people who had made it through the process, had permanently exited their abusive relationships, were, um, you know, doing well. And so I I talked to them about um, their histories of domestic violence. And then we talked a lot about sort of their barriers to accessing resources. So like when they were trying to get help, like what were the problems? Was it um, a community problem? So one of the things that we find is that in small rural communities, um, victims of domestic violence are sometimes afraid to reach out because of embarrassment. Like Mm -hmm. they don't want to be the subject of gossip. 
um, and news like, you yeah. know, a lot of these communities are very close knit. Um, and then you have situations, too, where it's like maybe their abuser is friends with somebody on the police force yeah. or maybe their neighbor works at the courthouse. So they're embarrassed to, like, go and get a protective order. Mm-hmm. Um, so we looked at sort of those social factors. We looked at um, factors from, like, a resource socioeconomic standpoint. So, like, do they have access to a car? Do they have mm-hmm. access to transportation? Um, financial barriers. So maybe they can't disentangle themselves from this relationship because, you know, all their money is tied up with this person or they they haven't had a job in 10 years. So they don't know how they're going to, you know, survive issues with children, all of these. And so um, from there, we sort of uh, parsed that data. So going through like all of these interviews and like pulling out, you know, what are recurring themes that we're Mm -hmm. seeing And then from there, developing tools and resources to kind of do a better job of maybe addressing some of those issues or highlighting some of those issues. Um, And so it was a really fun project in terms, you know, it's weird to say fun in context with domestic violence, but fun in terms of being able to see your research make like a tangible difference, but also fun in that like, I I worked with some great people in that organization and great people who work in our GIS lab. We had a lot of students who worked on this project because they did a lot of mapping of resources that then caseworkers from Midshore could use um, in terms of trying to assist clients when they um, were looking for like new housing or looking for, you know, resources within their area that they might not be aware of. And I think that's one of the things that's so impressive to me about about that um, project is you, years and years ago when you were telling me about it, I was thinking, okay, it's a it's a GIS, it's a mapping system for resources, and that seems very dry and technical and useful. But there's so much human work mm-hmm. that goes in to build that, and you know, uh, talking to you about the interviews and 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 talking to the people who are trying to get their lives, you know, extracted from horrible situations. Um, that eventually leads to like tools that people can do that easier. Um, I think I think it's really brilliant, and and to have uh, the the student angle of it too, where students can come in and 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 touch that project and be part of, mm-hmm. you know, not to get you know uh, too too far, but it's doing good. Yeah. In in, in a very concrete way, and and that's. Um, that's not always easy to be able to touch, especially if you're just an undergraduate who is, you know, working in the GIS lab. That's that's pretty brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it was it was, um, you know, something that I, I was proud to be a part of. Um, and, you know, it, one of my research assistants who worked with me for the summer, um, bless her, she went with me on like 30 of these interviews and transcribed them for me. Um, And she's uh, finished a degree getting a master's in social work. And she wrote her thesis sort of on this experience and um, talk. Her thesis was essentially looking at online and offline tools for Midshore to like better advertise in the community so that people knew about their um, services. Uh, So like it was kind of a, a great progression of watching her move from, you know, looking at uh, this raw data to like transforming it into a usable project. (laughs) 
Okay, so for the the last thing I want to ask about about research uh, that we have time for me to ask you about research is, uh, what's next? You've got a book coming up. What's what's? Yeah, so I um, was contacted by a publisher at ABC Clio, which is an educational publisher uh, that's now part of Bloomsbury, which is a big publisher in the UK. I guess um, I, I had to do a lot of research on publishers before <laughs> I decided to sign this contract. But I'm writing a book about mass incarceration, so it's kind of meant for a general audience, um, not necessarily a textbook textbook, but like, you know, something uh, that a a person who didn't know a lot about mass incarceration could pick Mm -hmm. up and get like a history, understand um, sort of the current consequences, um, understand like what are the big, like important um, pieces of legislation associated with it, where the important, who are the important figures Mm -hmm. in mass incarceration, uh, in terms of like the lead up to this problem itself, but also like people who are calling for reforms or calling for, you know, investigations and how the system operates. Um, and so it's going to be due in February of 2025, which seems <laughs> far away, but is probably not that far away. <laughs> yeah. um, so I've started kind of outlining um, the various chapters and, and, and pulling my literature. Um, I'm excited about this project just because in working on like the gender violence stuff and I also did some um, social movement work with some of my old colleagues at Ohio State, I hadn't really worked on a lot of mass incarceration stuff in a few years. So it'll be exciting to get back into it and also um, I guess push me to read some things that I've been meaning to read for a while, <laughs> but you know have had other things come up. So I'm excited to kind of get back into this research, um, mainly because um, the book that I'm writing is largely going to be sort of an overview of everything. But I'm hoping it's going to help me formulate some new research questions um, going forward, so that I can be doing some of my own original. Um, data collection and research uh, at the conclusion of this book project. My 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 only anxiety would be that things seem to be changing constantly. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is good good and bad because that means the topic is fresh. But for, for a researcher, that's not. <laughs> yeah, easy. it's the same issue with teaching my classes too. It's like every semester I got to go back and look look through things, and <laughs> I, I'm teaching juvenile delinquency this semester, and it's the first time I've taught it in a few years, and there have been some um, supreme court cases uh, around um, juveniles that I I kind of had to like go back and be like, okay, now I have to incorporate this case. Now I have to incorporate this case. Actually, this thing that I used to teach is not a thing anymore. Um, So... Well, that's very cool. I, 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 I'm, I'm positive that it's going to be a very cool book. Um, so to, to, to kind of close off, I have a, a, a couple of just very random, very silly questions that, that I would like to ask you. So okay. first, if you weren't a professor, what would you be today? Um, I don't know. I guess probably like two things. Like if I'm staying sort of in the vein of like what I do now – I actually didn't really want to be a professor at first when I was in grad school. Uh-huh. I wanted to just be like a policy analyst or like a research analyst at some government agency. Like sure. that was all I aspired to when yeah. I was in grad school. Like, <laughs> yes, I will be a desk jockey like somewhere at like DOJ. Yeah. And um, so I still wouldn't mind doing that work. I actually have a friend who's a research analyst at the Census Bureau mm-hmm. and loves her job. And so like I could see myself doing that. But like I also love gardening. 
And so Excellent. Um, I, I've told my husband, like, if we ever won the lottery, um, I think I would just garden full time. So like some some way to integrate gardening and making money, um, that would, I guess, be my other job. That's how, OK, I've got it. I can't ask a follow up question, but I have many questions. <laughs> um, so other next silly question. So you did get your Ph.D. at the Ohio State University, right? Yes. So <laughs> how do you feel about the end of uh, this football season? It was a heartbreaker. It's really tough to spend the first couple minutes of 2023 watching your team lose playoff game in uh, with a, a, a kick. Um, the kick that went way left. It was like not even close <laughs> yeah. to the uprights. Um but I, I will say um, I think Ohio State has gotten some flack from uh, folks, particularly people who are really into the SEC and ACC, about us going to the playoffs and then getting smoked by like an ACC or SEC team. And given the uh, outcome of Georgia TCU, yeah. um, most people, uh, at least most Ohio State fans, have been saying like. <laughs> Really, the real national championship was Ohio State, Georgia, because that game was so close and so. It was a good game. Yeah. So, um, next silly question: um, If you had to sing one uh, karaoke-style song in front of your class, what song would that be? Ooh, guess I gotta go. Good by Better Than Ezra. Oh, mid nineties. Nice choice. <laughs> And then the last question, um, tell me two specific things about your family or your pets that you think are just cool. Okay. Um, Well, I have a a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter uh, who is a delight. She has started watching Peppa Pig, and she has developed a little bit of a British accent um, because she watched British because she's been watching Peppa Pig. So um, it comes out a lot as an inflection when she's asking questions, but she's also taken to calling things very naughty. Um, So she'll tell me or my husband or uh, one of our various animals, you are very naughty. And it's really cute to watch like small children mimic a British accent. Um, And then I guess the other thing uh, so we have like uh, we are burgeoning on a Noah's Ark. We have like a turtle, three cats, and a dog. And I volunteer pretty regularly at our animal shelter. So um, they've kind of dubbed me the Cat Whisperer because weirdly, like the difficult cats seem to like me. <laughs> and so the mantra that I have to take every time I go to the animal shelter is: four cats are too many cats. <laughs> we can only have three. Three is our limit. <laughs> That's that's good. Well, thank you so very much, Professor Durso, for, for the the talk. Um, and there you have it. Our first interview wrapped up very nicely. As I said before, I only wish we could have talked a little bit more. I think that's probably going to be a regular feeling here at the end of each uh, interview. So please subscribe to our podcast so you can get the next session as soon as it does come out. And do get in touch with any comments, questions, or suggestions. This has been Flock to Faculty. Thank you so much for listening.